welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Today's guest is Masha Gordon. In June, she became the fastest woman to complete the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits Challenge. For me, as someone who came into endurance um, sports quite late in life, it was actually quite fun personal challenge. Seven Summits are the highest mountain on each of the seven continents, and the Explorer's Grand Slam is that, plus the North Pole and the South Pole. I thought, well, if I add South Pole and North Pole and climb three mountains, I can do it. Contrary to what you might think, Masha isn't a lifetime mountaineer. She only picked it up after a successful career in the finance industry. In today's episode, we'll be talking about decision-making, both in the markets and on the mountains, and later, what she's doing to get more women climbing. Uh, I was, uh, by my calculation, 400th woman to uh, climb Everest, so summit Everest, rather, among 6,000 ascents. I'm Ben Shank. You're listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister is supported by Steo from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Right now, I'm wearing the Rivet Cord Pant. It's a classic corduroy, but it has a little bit of a modern twist tapered through the leg. The fabric has some stretch to it, so it's perfect for riding your bike around the city. Steo also has a full line of women's apparel. My sister actually just bought the Environ Jacket. It's their flagship waterproof and breathable shell. It's perfect for resort skiing, but it also has features like pit zips. So if you're generating a lot of heat in the backcountry, the jacket will perform the way you need it to. In an exclusive Mountain Meister deal, yes, nowhere else, take 20% off with the code MEISTER at checkout. That's at Steo, S-T-I-O dot com. All right, well, how's your day Let's going? Let's rock and roll. Good, good. I just came down from a big climb in Chamonix. I did a friend spur, so I feel happy. I woke up at 3 in the morning in the refuge and kind of one of my favorite days. So you woke up at 3 o'clock this morning? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and uh, hit the glacier and then climbed about 3,000 feet um, up to 4,000 4, meters, which in feet will be, I guess, uh, 40,000 feet. So, yeah, and I had an amazing day. So now I'm back from the mountains. So if I don't make much sense, I've been climbing. <laughs> well, yeah, but, so it's – oh, okay. What time is it there? That's why I'm a little confused. It's, it's the evening. Okay. Yeah, I was like, we, how we did should, you fit we all should, this in? <laughs> we, should, we should be fine. <laughs> okay. Um, you are listening to Mountain Meister. Uh, on the other end of the line is Masha Gordon, who is now the fastest woman to complete the Seven Summits and the Explorer's Grand Slam. Uh, congratulations, Masha. How fast did you do those? Um, I did those in a little bit under eight months, in seven months and 19 days to be exact. Wow. Very impressive. And what was the record before that? Um, Vanessa O'Brien's record was uh, over 11 months. Okay. So you, you beat it by a considerable margin. That's right. I know Vanessa, actually. She was a mountain meister and we've had coffee. I heard, yes. No, I, I did hear her, her podcast and it was terrific. So it's, oh, an honor, yeah. it's an honor to be speaking with you. Well, thank you. Did you work or talk to Vanessa at all before doing this project? No, not really. Um, I have been actually um, kind of the, the project happened 
as I was, um, you know, preparing myself for Everest. So it kind of happened a little bit haphazardly. Hmm. Uh, I've done a number of summits and then I thought, well, wait a minute, if I repeat three and ski to the South and North Pole, I can beat the, the um, world record. And mm-hmm. for me, as someone who came into endurance um, um, sports quite late in life, it was actually quite fun personal challenge. Well, you actually have a similar background in the fact that you were uh, you had a very successful finance career, as did Vanessa, I believe. Sure, sure, sure. I've done mountaineering for about seven years now, so I'm uh, based uh, in Chamonix part of the year, and uh, for me, it was kind of a combination of um, really good skills base that I've accumulated here by doing lots of different routes. Um, Chamonix is fantastic in, uh, in the ability of uh, one to get um, to a high altitude environment and highly technical environment in basically 30 minutes, given how the leaves are structured here. So it's been an amazing uh, learning experience. And then seeing that culminate in the endurance record has been terrific. Yes, a training playground. You have endless options, it seems like. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Very good. So what, uh, what was the hardest mountain or pole, would you say? I just wanted to do some quick hits. Maybe the hardest, the easiest. Sure. So I, uh, for my scenes, I've decided I've climbed Denali in the past. And for my scenes, I decided that the last mountain of the challenge should be Denali's Cassin Ridge. And that's one of the, uh, it's the largest single um, wall in North America. It's 39 peaches. Um over I think 8,000 feet and you have to sleep on ledges and uh, it's kind of a feat of alpinism and I decided that it wasn't enough to uh, ski to North Pole, Everest and climb just Denali in three months time. I wanted to stretch myself and um, try out a big wall. So Cassin was hands down the hardest, but that's not what people normally do in, in the Seven Summits Challenge and that's because it's highly technical. Um, you sleep on the tiny ledges that you basically carve on the on the ridge wall um, and then you're committed you know once you've done the first 10 pitches there's no uh, turn back and as you know Denali is known for very unpredictable weather so it was uh, a again a personal challenge but it now uh, prepped me for doing really exciting climbs um, uh, here in Sham and and truly around the world hmm. yeah absolutely and what about the easiest mountain well um Look, I've done um, Kelly in 24 hours. Uh, I came down from an 8,000-meter peak, Manaslu, and I thought, well, let's try and see what we can do on, on the mountain that, uh, you know, is, is, is a challenge for an amateur climber. But having been acclimatized, I was interested how acclimatization will, you know, will work uh, on what is still pretty high mountains, 5,600 meters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to do it, you know, under 24 hours to the summit. And that felt like an ultra train run, trail run. So it, that, that's that been really, really fun. Um, Aconcagua was quite, again, I was repeating the mountain, but I had a slightly added challenge. I uh, broke my wrist, uh, quite unfortunately, in the uh, middle of my challenge climbing here. And I, I climbed that with with a cast, so though it was an easy mountain, uh, i.e., because I was ripping normal route, um, I had to uh, climb it slightly, sort of handicapped. Any any sort of differences climbing with a broken wrist beyond what we would imagine? Yeah, you you get this fear, uh, which is quite irrational, but it's a fear that on on a scree, if you fall, 
you will re-injure yourself. Mm. And uh, when I arrived to base camp, the doctor insisted that I remove my cast and it was on my, my um, wrist only for three weeks. So I was quite traumatized, but I was with, you know, you, you sort of think, well, I have all these climbs, I have Everest, you know, I really have, have to have it healed and not uh, kind of uh, rebroken again. But I was with an amazing climate partner, very caring, who said, oh, why, don't worry, it's, you know, we'll short rope you and you'll be absolutely fine. And that really, really helped. And at the end, I didn't fall. But, you know, having that uh, solution in my head was was really cool. So when did this become uh, almost a race to get the seven summits done quickly? Um, so I've decided um, in December, having done actually a number of summits beforehand that it kind of occurred to me that if I were to wrap it, wrap it together with the poles, um, I will beat the record by a considerable margin. Um, and, uh, you know, I was already, um, you know, climbing Vincent. I thought, well, if I add South Pole and North Pole and reclimb three mountains, I can do it. So sometime in December. So um, I guess six months prior to actually setting the record. And you're telling me there wasn't just a little part of you that when you were ticking off the mountains before that you were saying well maybe this will be part of something bigger honestly i was preparing for everest and again you know for me it was a dream that got me as an amateur climber uh to hone my scales and get me um to high altitude climbing uh, and i guess prior summits you know i, I was a, a fund manager in the prior life and a risk manager right so i was thinking i'm a mom i don't really want to pass away on a mountain so what are the risks? And I kind of broke it down to cold, um, to endurance, um, and uh, to high altitude. And I, prior, obviously, to setting the record, I went on and did a number of these mountains that gave me skills. So Aconcagua was for high altitude. Um, Denali was for understanding how cold injuries work and what's the best way of protecting it. Uh, but look, I've, I've been a market athlete. You, you can call me, you can term me that. I, I ran... Uh, mutual funds. And I think that competitiveness in a way maybe manifested itself as I sat, <laughs> sat down and thought, ah, that could be interesting. And it was almost a race against myself. So I want to talk more about this finance career. You're a managing director at Goldman Sachs, uh, spent some time at PIMCO. As I said earlier, Vanessa also had this career sure. in business. What What is it about this uh, that makes you so successful in mountaineering? I think it's the probably, let's face it, A-type personality and kind of the ability of deploying your endurance, your mental endurance, so transferring. That's for me, has been the biggest discovery that you can tap into mental endurance that we as women have in our 40s, haven't had crying babies, right? Mm. Or we have had as a career women. Um, and then turn it uh, and leverage that in what looks like an impossible challenge. Um, also, look, I, I turned 40 a couple of years ago, and, you know, I I then witnessed, uh, you know, the uh, really interesting sort of personal crisis of Bill Gross, who was a founder of PIMCO. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if this guy who is the on his grave, on his tombstone, probably will have the best fund manager of a, mm -hmm. of a century. If he's so unhappy because of, you know, having a bad quarter, like, do I really want to be that? Um, and by that time, my passion to, for climbing has developed to, you know, kind of all-consuming, all-consuming uh, dimension. So I, I guess, I found some solitude and amazing um, problem-solving, actually, almost through through mountaineering. So I wanted to dedicate more time to that, and uh, 
um, that kind of, I guess, professionalism that I apply to gathering skills and doing my 10,000 hours, understanding, mm-hmm. right, that you have to have mandatory 10,000 hours to be good at anything and kind of going at it. Hmm. Now, I'm wondering when you meet other mountain athletes, let's call them, Sure. Does the way that you look at the world through, a, a, I would imagine, more of like a finance business lens, uh, do you find yourself making different decisions or looking at the mountain differently than uh, people who have more traditionally sure. grown up in the mountains? Uh, well, look, very uh, experienced people will not make behavioral mistakes or would um, would be very cognizant of behavioral mistakes. You're, you're sure of that? Uh, I think, that, yeah. I mean, I look at the, you know, this, we have in Germany very, very experienced guides, and they are aware of the traps you fall in, mm-hmm. into. And I, I'll, I'll walk through that. And actually, the interesting thing is the parallels with the financial world, with the way markets work. Now, amateurs, clearly climbers, amateur climbers, or driven athletes, perhaps, um, could get in those traps because of the uh, ego that gets intertwined with the objective. So behavioral mistakes that we do in the market is the group thing. And that, if you think of tragedies that have, have occurred in the mountains, and I think you've covered it in some of your podcasts, the K2 tragedy, it was a group thing, right? One guy looks at the mountains and says, I, I think I'm going to risk it. I think I'm, you know, the forecast is, is rubbish and I'm going to go and do it. And then the others look at him and say, oh, he's really smart. We're going to follow him. And that's how then big tragedies occur. Um, I've seen that happen in kind of an opposite way when people have been very, very risk averse and said, oh, well, the avalanche danger is too big and, you know, making assumptions and everyone taking the same decision and at the end it's been a blue, bluebird day, mm-hmm. which with that I actually don't have big problems because, you know, you've avoided probably a black swan event. Um, the other is confirmation bias when people only hear the information that supports their decision. So in mountaineering, you would be again looking out and saying, well, I heard the wind forecast is not great, but look, it's sunshine and it hasn't snowed. So I'm going to go with that. Right. Mm So it's uh, and in the markets, as you know, if you buy a stock, for example, uh, you tend to only uh, hear the information that supports the investment decision. And only those investors that can be cognizant of that. Uh, bias and avoid that, you know, uh, avoid those the, those big pitfalls. So I think it helped me perhaps to filter some of the noise. But again, I'm human, and those human biases, as well as the um, adrenaline and uh, um, you know other hormones that go through our body when we get agitated or when the risk loveliness, right, in the mountains and the markets flows through our bodies. You know, clearly I'm human, but I guess the understanding of the types type A type B mistakes have helped me perhaps not get um, either very upset with re- retreats from the mountains, which have happened to me quite a number of times, or not get twisted in a tragedy. Now, Masha, I have to be completely honest. I am just so excited, and I feel like we're hitting on like the same level right now. And one of the things that gets me really excited in an interview is when the guest brings up the, basically the next uh, topic or question that I have lined up for them. So we're, we're hitting right. on the same level right now because you just mentioned a black swan event. And I was about to ask you if you knew about the author Nassim Taleb, which I imagine you do. Of course, of course. I, I, I have actually spoken on a panel with him once in, okay. my, in my prior life. Yes. So I just finished about a month ago reading Fooled by Randomness. Uh-huh. And I wonder, you bring up these experienced guides in Chamonix. And I always wonder with these mountain guides, 
They are skilled, but how do we know that they're still alive due to skill and not luck? I mean, there has to be some sort of distribution, right, of the people who right. stay alive in the mountains. How do we know that that's not just random? Well, I have said with adopted father, the guy who brought me into the world of mountaineer, and he's in his mid-60s, and he always points to the cemetery and says, cemetery is filled with young guides. Um, so that's kind of probably, a, sadly, a, a, an answer here. Mm -hmm. And if you look here in, in Chamonix, the, um, the National School of Alpinism, um, at the class of people who are now in their mid-40s, um, again, a number of my friends, they look at their class, and half of their classmates are gone. Um, and it's, it's incredibly tragic, right? Now the School of Alpinism is bringing in programming that is actually teaching the, uh, the young guides as to how to think about risk, how to refine judgment, as well as how to deal with clients. So very often tragedies occur because unfortunately guides are in a lowly paid profession and they get pushed by clients to take on assignments in bad weather and um, or go beyond the um, the competence of the client and then you get you get in a in a traumatic situation so it's again interesting that it's being addressed because it's understood that this this level of casualties are, are really are really really highly unacceptable mm -hmm. so they're working on eliminating more behavioral errors exactly and because again it's the one is look we can always argue the if you think of the uh, people who climb 8,000 meter peaks, we often say that some of the guys who got all 14 8,000 meter peaks, that some of it is extraordinary skill, preparation, out of focus, but huge amount of that is luck. And luck relates to a combination of being there in the right weather window or jumping in front of the bad weather window and escaping alive. So I think that, um, you know, in mountaineering, there's always this gray zone if we risk it and take a little bit more risk and we are successful, we're heroes. Um, so again, uh, probably there's no right or wrong answer. You summit in the mountain, you came down alive. What is it, luck or, or skill? It must be so frustrating for you though to, in finance where everything is measurable, right? And then you go to mountaineering where almost everything is immeasurable. There's no, I, there's no you know what, Ben, I don't know. I don't know because, um, if I look at mountaineering and, and at finance, sorry, I, in my kind of later years of my career, I was, uh, you know, big adherent of behavioral finance. <laughs> if you look at kind of, you apply behavioral finance to the way the markets operate, you, you should read this great book, Between the Hour of the Dog and the Wolf. And it basically talks about, you know, the uh, neuroscience applied to finance, which is what areas of your brain uh, get activated when you are excited about <clears throat> the big events. Say, Fed, you have a bet mm. uh, about the, the way the Fed is going to set rates. And you compare the um, that activity in the brain with the, you know, the MRI, with the MRI of a gambler. And it's exactly the same point. Right. It's our primary brain. Again, very, I, I'm sure if you were to um, MRI the, the, um, the brain of a mountaineer going up, uh, I don't know, he's 14, 8,000 meter peak and jumping the weather window, there'll be the same sort mm -hmm. of primary cortex in, inflamed. Um, so again, I think I have amazing, a huge amount of respect for people who uh, exercise judgments and walk away from the mountain. And though they may be next day, the, we the weather may prove them wrong, they've stayed alive. And, you know, obviously great and trivial, trivial and great, expression the mountain will be there tomorrow is very very true coming up 
on Mountain Meister. And Eric brought ma- old male boot, and then we bought some felt insert, and then we put a plastic bag inside, and then we put some other insert. And these were my polar boots that I tracked um, over 70 miles to the North Pole. Mountain Meister is supported by your purchases of the Mountain Meister t-shirt. The t-shirt is specifically designed to be one of your favorites, not only when it's t-shirt weather, but also during the winter. I made it a neutral color and super soft, so you can wear it underneath just about anything. Go to mtnmeister.com, make a purchase there. We're also supported by the American Alpine Club. Get gear and lodging discounts by being a member of the club. Join today at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Use the code MEISTER when you sign up for a free AAC gift. And finally, we are supported by Steo. Go check out my full interview with founder of Steo, Steve Sullivan. That's on our website as well, mtnmeister.com. I saw that you you said you didn't meet any moms on the mountain. Oh, on on ever in ever space camp. Ever yes, space I was. Uh, yeah, so look, uh, I was uh, by my calculation four hundredth woman to uh, climb Everest, so summit Everest rather, uh, among six thousand six thousand ascents, uh, and that's you know sort of pretty pretty extraordinary statistic, right? Uh, women, and it's my big bugbear. Um, women, sadly have not been encouraged, partly by social stereotypes, um, to enter this amazing world uh, that keeps us fit. It's one of the best, uh, you know, best ways of exercising from or learning from the base, uh, low, low base level of fitness. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that tracks from kind of amateur climbers like myself, i.e. being the only mom on, on Everest, to uh, elite climbers. Um, in fact, one of the things, one of my projects um, that I'm involved in is setting up a prize, expedition prize, to encourage female first ascents. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, the saddest thing is that if you look at the Oscars of alpinism uh, called Pioleador, mm-hmm. the uh, golden um, Isaacs, since 1992, when it was established, only once a woman won that prize. Um, and uh, she was a part of the all-male team. Uh, she was a part of majority male team. So I think that the uh, gear market is very small, and people are <clears throat> people who run the companies make very rational decisions. We are not going to have, um, you know, um, alpinist mm-hmm. uh, female uh, sponsored athletes, and that triggers down to women not having enough experience on the mountains uh, to then um, have a portfolio to be able to win highest awards. Yeah, so it's it's ingrained, or I guess you can't you can't expect the companies to cater to something that doesn't exist yet. So are you sure? But to- but but to me, actually, the extraordinary thing I'll tell you, and I, I think that I was going to the pole, uh, to the North Pole and the South Pole, is as it is, and uh, you know I have six, you know U.S. size six six and a half uh, foot. Um, and I wasn't able to find any polar boots. Oh my so God, that's fantastic companies don't make that. So I went with to North Pole with this great uh, Arctic explorer called um, Eric Larson. Mm-hmm. And Eric brought ma- old male boot, and then we bought some felt insert, and then we put a plastic bag inside, and then we put some other insert. And these were my polar boots that I tracked 
um, over 70 miles to the North Pole. Uh, average down suits don't come in female sizes, so I was wearing a uh, male extra small for mountain hardware uh, that fit okay but not great. So it's, um, you know, I, I think the companies that could seize the opportunity and endorse it, even if it's just uh, a token endorsement, you know, in 20 years' time, we'll own this market. So, but but there, that's a completely different business model, isn't it? Making a down suit, making a boot, making uh, even ski boots. I've heard there's a problem with hmm. uh, aggressive female skiers finding stiff enough ski boots. Right, right. You can't expect one company to build all of those sure. products, right? You know, to be honest, modern hardware could just take that male suit and just put female extra, extra small <laughs> right. on it and just, you know, uh, pay, pay lip service. Um, but again, you know, they, again, part of it, what interests me more is that then that triggers to us having very, very few uh, endurance right, athletes, right. female endurance athletes in the space. And that, you know, clearly something that has to change because, you know, we, we live in a different world and, I think adventure uh, is the uh, the best uh, route uh, to to that equality. Mm-hmm. So, just one more thought: if I could transition sure. Mountain Meister's business, uh, maybe that's what I need to target some a very niche audience in uh, female alpinists and polar explorers that need the right kind of gear. Um, and maybe, <laughs> well, I'm sure you have a big fan club among, amongst women because you you bring you bring uh, stories of. Uh, you know, amazing women. In fact, I, I got to know your podcast by when I was skiing to the South Pole. And it was, as you probably know, it's very, very monotonous. Uh-huh. And it's 12 hours of skiing. And I've I've heard in Japan and all, lots of, you know, Hazel Finley, <laughs> who you. I now know personally. And I love the stories. And it, for me, it was an encyclopedia of adventure. And so thank you very much for bringing those stories. Well, thank you so much, Masha. That is very, very uh, nice of you to say. And I will be taking investors for my new business coming up shortly. So if you want to get Great. in on the action, let me know. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, speaking of funding, how did you just go with your personal savings to fund this enormous project or did you bring on sponsors? So I was sponsored for, for my last climb and I put all the money uh, towards charity it was a very interesting project working with uh, Sharpie on its new product, Sharpie Extreme. And they've been very, very generous to make a large donation um, uh, to the charity that I founded called Re- Great and Rock, which deals with uh, empowering women and young women through through outdoors. Um, and uh, Sharpie also helped me uh, bring my family in a way you asked me about being a mom uh, on the journey. We use the product to uh, for my kids to write great messages uh, on uh, my gear and ISICs and uh, a backpack. And, uh, you know, on, on, uh, that was, you know, going to that Cassine Ridge that I spoke about before, the most try and climb. Mm-hmm. So seeing um, messages from my daughter, you know, I love you, mommy, because you're strong, have been uh, holding me up at the time when I was quite ready to give up. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you, uh, I, this is potentially a thought-provoking question. Um, sure. But I think we view the world in similar lights, so I'm going to ask it to you anyway. The opportunity cost of you doing all of these climbs would potentially be the, the fact that you could donate that money to Grit and Rock and start off with a much larger uh, sum. How do you how do you balance these personal objectives that you have with um, philanthropy? No, no, absolutely. You, you have you have a great point, and clearly, it is a costly project. Uh, but it was a personal journey, and uh, you know, 
I um, got to the point where I transitioned from full-time career to a portfolio career board work. And um, for me, this was uh, a journey that I wanted to do. And I guess if you, you can call it a, a, a positive midlife crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a man in my position would have bought a Lamborghini for probably a similar amount of money <laughs> and drove around. I, I'm, I'm not sort of speaking down on that. Um, for me, it was uh, spending 100 days in a 100 nights in a tent and walking in uh, minus 40 Fahrenheit weather. Um, and again, neither is uh, superior. Um, it was something that was important, and uh, it actually opened me. We we'll talk about life. Li- speaking about life transitions, right? We we will live longer lives uh, as demographics predicting, and hopefully, I won't perish in a climate accident. Um, so when we make the life transitions, we um, we need to re- have a positive power of reinvention. So uh, when I uh, transitioned to a portfolio career, I frankly didn't know what what I would do apart from using my market knowledge on boards. And this journey just opened up the world of uh, using positive uh, transformational power of outdoors and now being involved with um, the alpinism of female alpinism world and trying to encourage creation of new role models and raising the, uh, in fact, elite climbers uh, mm-hmm. through uh, bringing in sponsorship, helping them tell their stories through uh, social media. Again, that's an effort that will be magnified. So I think I would argue, man, I would have never got to that point of, um, I think, bringing in that charity to life had I not gone on that journey and experienced uh, firsthand how the outdoors and being exposed to intermittent stress and, you know, cold changed my own um, perspective on what what's important in life. What a wonderful answer. Very well said. You can find out more about Masha. Uh, we'll have links on our Meister profile page on mtnmeister.com. Our final question for you, Masha, is who would you like to hear next on the show? Sure. It's hands down a, a lady called Lydia Brady. Um, Lydia Brady is a uh, New Zealand guide and a first woman to summit Everest without oxygen in 1988. And the extraordinary thing about Lydia is that um, she actually faced that world of first women coming into all uh, man's world of alpinism. Mm. And uh, when she did made the ascent, she was 26 years old. She did it all by herself, going into the night. Um, and then that ascent was not recognized for two years because her male counterparts wanted them to be the first Kiwis to oh win the God. prize after Hillary, Hillary, uh, so Hillary. And it was only intervention of New York Times uh, journalist and investigation two years later that reinstated her. She's an amazing person with an incredible sense of humor. Uh, she has a great book, Going Up is Easy. She's set a number of first ascents, and she's been a, a terrific, terrific mentor to me. So she's, she's great, uh, funny, and could kind of lift the curtain on kind of the world of the past that hopefully we won't be seeing again. Unbelievable. Keep an ear out for Lydia Brady on a future episode of Mountain Meister. More on Masha's project at gritandrock.net. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Ben. Good luck with your with your undertaking. And yes, do, do send me a deck when I'll you have it. I'll send you my okay? deck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, hope you enjoyed that episode. That's Masha Gordon. She's the new women's world record holder of the Explorers Grand Slam and the Seven Summits Challenge. You heard in the interview that Masha is working to get more women climbing, and Grid and Rock has just created the first Ascent Award 
$6,000 grant going to one female-led team to establish a first ascent. We'll have the link to that and a video that explains the whole thing on Masha's Meister profile page. You heard us mention a few books there, one of them, Between the Hour of the Dog and Wolf. I just started reading that, one chapter in, and already loving it. We'll have the link to that on our website. You can also get a free audiobook through Mountain Meister if you sign up for audible.com. Thanks to this episode's sponsor, Steo. They make a versatile line of mountain apparel for anything from your alpine pursuits. They have down puffies and waterproof breathable shells, all the way to the quieter moments in mountain life. Your flannels, your denim. Take 20% off for the holidays with the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at Stio.com, S-T-I-O.com. As usual, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. If you like it, leave us a review on iTunes. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.